If you'd like to join along with the reading, we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20 today. And I'm going to read uh, from verse 29. As Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. And is headed out of Jericho. So verse 29, let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. That's Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, compassion, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What's the main passage we'll be looking at this morning? But uh, before we do so, I want to read some more verses from the book of Acts. So if you could turn on to Acts chapter 26, please, on page 935. Page 935 in the Church Bibles, Acts 26. And we're moving from the Jericho Road to a court. Uh, The Apostle Paul is on trial before Agrippa, who's a a king. And he's telling the story uh, of, or ultimately of how he came to faith himself. Telling the story of his conversion and the job that Christ gave him to to do. So I can read from verse 12, Acts 26, verse 12, and we're in the middle of Paul's defence speech. So, in this connection, says Paul, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Amen. Let me pray for us once more. 
Lord Jesus, we pray now that you would uh, preach to us as Gentiles. Would you shine the light of your word into our hearts? Would you pour your spirit upon us? Would you open our eyes that we might see? Bless us, we pray. In your own name. Amen. What are you hoping for from this sermon? What are you, what are you hoping for the next however many minutes it may be? Perhaps you're wondering it won't be very many minutes, hoping that it's going to be a short one. Uh, perhaps you're hoping it won't be too dull, too boring, too dry. Uh, perhaps your, your sights are set a little bit higher and you're hoping to learn something. It'd be great to learn something uh, that I don't know, haven't come across before. It'd be great to be encouraged, to be infused with the week ahead. Well, those are all pretty reasonable uh, things to, to hope from a sermon. But they're not, I think, what we should be really aiming for. They're not the, the top goal, if you like. Uh, what you should be hoping for is something that I am just totally unable to give you. Okay, that there are some things that are probably within my power as a human being to do. Okay? It is possible for me to be short when I preach. Okay? That is within my power. Again, not promising, but it's possible. Uh, it is possible for a preacher, not necessarily me, but it's possible for a preacher to be entertaining, okay? or interesting, or funny, or educational. They put on YouTube, get on TED Talks. There are all sorts of inspirational talks out there. It is possible for human beings to do that. But, but your hope on a Sunday morning when you come to church and whoever it is gets up to, 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 to preach, your hope should be, should be fixed higher than that. On, on something that is totally beyond my ability or anyone else's ability to deliver. I think it would be summed up best by the, uh, the words of... Uh, uh, some Greeks who come to Philip in John's gospel. And Philip says, you know, what's going on? What, what do you want? And they say, sir, we want to see Jesus. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. Uh, the um, Bible college I, I trained at, theological college, um, you had to take it in turns as all the, all the students, all the training ministers to, to preach. And there was a wooden, kind of much more serious wooden lectern at the front. And as you got up there to preach, just in this little kind of plaque was stuck on it. And that verse was there, sir, we would see Jesus. It's quite a common thing in, in pulpits, actually. You probably don't go in many pulpits. Um, and it's not on our music stands. But, but it's, it's common. Sir, we want to see Jesus. It, it is seeing Jesus... Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. Remember the verse we began our, our, our service with uh, from um, at the beginning of John? It is Jesus who's revealed God's glory to us. No one has seen God, but the Son, the Word, has been made flesh. It, it is seeing God in the face of Christ that, that actually transforms us, that changes us more than anything else. So much so, in fact, that, 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 that John, that same disciple who wrote the Gospel, when he writes a, a letter to God's people later on, uh, can, can look forward to the day that Christ returns. And he says, look, you're children of God now. Okay, if you've trusted the gospel, you're children of God now. But he goes on and says this, what we shall be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Okay, so when Christ returns, you're going to be like him if you're one of his people. Okay, totally transformed. No more sin, no more suffering, resurrection bodies, total transformation. How is it going to happen? John goes on, because we shall see him as he is. 
that extraordinary? What's going to change you? When Christ returns, what's going to change your decaying body? What's going to eliminate the rest of the sin in you? What's going to get rid of all suffering and pain? John, we will see him. Seeing Christ, seeing Christ is the the answer. The answer to, to all the battles of the Christian life. It is the power that enables you to live a Christian life here on earth. And if you're someone at the moment who's, who's just a bit sceptical about Christianity, then, then the only way you're ever going to be convinced is by coming and looking at Jesus Christ. So I want to just, just think about two things this morning, pretty simply. Uh, the first is we need mercy to see. We need mercy in order to see. Uh, if you're still in Acts, come back to, to Matthew 20, please. Um, we're going through Matthew's Gospel at the moment. Uh, so that's our, our main passage this morning. And we are on this, this road from Jericho. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and Jericho is the last stop before you get to Jerusalem. Yeah, the last proper stop, okay? You're travelling to Leeds. It's like Sheffield. It's just a stopping off place before you get to Leeds. It's not the big deal itself, but it is, well, it's a decent stop on the way. And as they come out of Jericho, this crowd is following Jesus. Uh, they're heading up. It's Passover season. We know that um, it's gonna, coming soon. And the crowd have, have begun to get behind Christ. Uh, and yet, as they, they head out of the city, there are these two blind men sitting by the roadside. Uh, in Mark's gospel, we're, we're told that, there's, um, that one of them is called yeah, uh, Bartimaeus, a blind Bartimaeus. This is the same story. Mark only f- focuses on one, just Bartimaeus. Um, here we're, we're told about two blind men. That, by the way, is not a contradiction. Okay, every now and again, you, you come across people say the Bible contradicts itself. And this is one of the examples that gets given. Mark says there's one blind man, Bartimaeus. Matthew says there's two blind men and doesn't name them. That, that is not a contradiction. Okay. Mark never says there was only one blind man. Just focuses on one of them, Bartimaeus. Probably because Bartimaeus became a, a big figure in the church uh, later on. We're not too sure, but that's likely why he bothers naming him. Um, there's no contradiction with Mark focusing on one and Matthew being more generic and mentioning both of them. So if I call one of them Bartimaeus, that's because I've slipped back into thinking from Mark's gospel uh, later on. Anyway, here are the two blind men. And they hear, obviously they can't see, but they hear Jesus passing by, verse 30. And so they cry out. It's not a little whimper, it's not a little kind of polite request. They, they are shouting out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. There's a real irony here. These men are blind, but they can see what so many others in, in, Mark's, in Matthew's gospel rather can't see. They can see that Jesus is the son of David. Um, that, that, again, that, if you've been around a bit, that might strike you as well. Okay, fine. Not particularly exciting. But, but actually, that, that is a royal title. Okay, that, that is like calling someone, a bit like calling someone the Prince of Wales or something. You are the heir to the throne. You are the one who is going to rule. David was a king in the Old Testament, the, really the great king of the Old Testament. And God promised back in 2 Samuel 7 that one day one of his descendants would rule forever. He'd never be deposed, never die. He would rule forever. And ever since, the Jews, the Israelites, were waiting for this king, this son of David. Jesus, as in the name Jesus, it it would have been very uninteresting in the day. No one nowadays calls their kids Jesus, do they? Because, obviously, it feels a bit irreverent. Well, at least in England, they don't. They do elsewhere. But it feels like it's sort of, you know, a holy name or something. But it's a very ordinary name, just, just Joshua, basically. 
Okay, so, so the fact that Jesus was called Jesus back in the day would have been not that surprising. But son of David, that is a, that is a royal title. They know that this is God's king. And they know they need mercy from him. And the, the, the crowd tried to shut him up. Do you see that? First of all, the crowd rebuked them. Tell them to be quiet. Just be quiet. I don't know why. Maybe the crowd think that Jesus doesn't want to waste his time with, with beggars. Blind people. He's got crowds. He hasn't got time for you. Chuck him a couple of coins. Pop them in their little coffee cup and just get him to shut up so we can get on with the main stuff to Jerusalem. Who knows? But either way, they try and make the, the, the two men quiet, but they just shout out all the more. Verse 31, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. They're crying out. They will not be quiet. And Jesus stops and asks that question, amazing question. What do you want me to do for you? Amidst all the crowds, amidst the triumph, amid the, the glory, he stops for two presumably very poor <coughs> blind beggars and ask what do you want me to do for you here is the the great king stopping and asking what they want I don't know if you've ever seen a royal met a royal I haven't Uh, my sister once had to present a bouquet of flowers to uh, Princess Margaret it was that's that's as close as as we ever got to royalty uh, when we were little kind of primary school age kids Um, I I am absolutely confident, as my little sister sort of, well, actually, she, didn't, she was, got scared and ran away, but she was eventually dragged. She hates that story. No, she, um, and she was eventually dragged towards Princess Margaret. I am absolutely confident Princess Margaret did not say, what, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, the Queen comes through, visits Leeds. Okay, she's not going to turn up uh, on the high street, wander over to, to someone who's been sleeping rough and say, what can I do for you? That's not how it works in human kingdoms but it is in the kingdom of God this whole chapter has all been about how the first shall be last and the last first how the whole kingdom of Christ is upside down here is the king coming to the lowest and saying what do you want me to do for you that ultimately is what Jesus says to you this morning what do you want me to do for you that that is astounding I wonder how you approach church it's tempting to think, is it? It's easy to think. I wonder if I give this impression sometimes from the front that, that we come primarily church to, to bring God our worship, bring him the praise that he deserves. That's true. He does deserve praise. But also we come empty-handed. We come to receive from him because he's a king who loves to give. So I love that prayer of Martin Luther we used earlier. Behold, Lord, I am an empty vessel. Fill it. You are the God uh, to whom I cannot give, but from whom I can receive, I must receive. I can't give anything. Amazingly, the God of the universe says to these blind men, what do you want me to do for you? And they know what to say. Have mercy, they've cried out. Have mercy, twice they've cried out. And what form does that mercy take? Well, verse 33, let our eyes be opened. Let us see. And Jesus is full of compassion. Verse 34, in pity, touch their eyes. Pity could sound like, you know, when you pity someone, you sort of slightly, oh dear, disgusting. It's, it's not that kind of word. It's, it's, it's an amazing word um, that, it, that talks about the, the bowels being moved, okay, your guts being moved. Um, that, that's how you feel things, isn't it? You know, we, we, we talk about the heart, oh, I lo- you know, I love you from the depths of our heart. But actually, when you really feel something strongly, it comes to your stomach, doesn't it? Your nerves, it's stomach. 
Um, real love. You see, you're, I don't know, you're about to get married and your, your, your wife appears, or wife-to-be appears at the back. It's, it's in the stomach, you feel it. Uh, in his guts, Jesus felt for them. There's a modern translation. It might be something like his heart went out to them, something like that. And he touches their eyes and immediately, like that, they recover their sight and follow him. What's going on? Uh, is, is, it, is it just another miracle, another sign that Jesus is God, that he has God's power? That, well, yes, it is that. Uh, all the miracles in all the Gospels show us how amazing he is, how powerful he is, how compassionate he is. Um, they give us a picture of where we're going, the fact that Jesus can transform our broken lives to, to wholeness again. But there's something I think more going on here. Uh, this is the, the last real healing type miracle in Matthew's Gospel. He's healed people all the way through in different ways. But this is the last one. You might see chapter 21 begins with a triumphal entry. He's going into Jerusalem. From now on, he's going to be crucified. Okay? He's heading to the cross. We're in the last sort of week, eight, nine, ten days of Jesus' life now. And it's significant, I think, that the last miracle is one of sight. Someone being able to see. Uh, why is this miracle right at the end? of his sort of earthly ministry. But I think it's kind of a, a, a climactic, a capstone miracle. It's saying if you want to really be able to see and believe all that's happened so far, you're going to need mercy from Jesus to do so. Not physically see. You and I are never going to physically see, or not for a long time anyway, not until Christ returns. We're never going to on earth physically see Jesus. But if you want to see with the eyes of your heart, to believe, in other words then you need mercy from Christ in order to do so. Sight comes from Jesus. Uh, let me say to you, if, if, again, if you're, if you're new to Christian things or um, very unconvinced by Christian things, let me put it like that. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm so pleased you feel able to come along. We hope church will be welcoming to you. Um, we hope it's a place you can come with questions and doubts and sort of confusions and all the rest. But perhaps it seems very odd to you. Why would... Your friend who's dragged you along or your mum who's sent you or whatever it might be. Why do they believe in this person they've never seen? No one's ever seen God. None of us have ever seen Jesus. No photos. Now, in one sense, you can say, well, we believe in lots of things we can't see, don't we? You believe in love. You believe in logic. You believe in consciousness. There's all sorts of things you believe in you can't see. But even leaving that aside, there are two reasons you might not see something. Children, think about this. There are two reasons you might not see something. So imagine someone, okay, imagine someone who didn't believe in Picasso, okay, the artist, Picasso. How, and there's a lot, I just, no such, no such person, no such thing, okay, it's just a figment. It's a, it's a story concocted by history of art teachers to pad out the curriculum. Okay, it's just nonsense. How would you persuade them that Picasso existed, the artist existed? Children, how might you persuade people? Well, you might take them to a gallery of all Picasso's paintings. And perhaps the gallery would even have photos of Picasso himself there on the wall. But that might not persuade everybody. Because there are two reasons someone might not see. The first might be because there's nothing to see. But the second might be because they're blind. If you take someone round a gallery and they keep their eyes shut and you hold a photo of Picasso in front of their face and you picture some of his best works none of which I can remember 
and just hold them in front and say, look, here, if they keep their eyes shut or if they're blind, it's not going to do anything. There are two possible reasons. Again, I'm going to speak to you for somebody who wouldn't call yourself a Christian. There are two possible reasons you don't think this is all true. One possibility, of course, is that it's not true. There is no God. Jesus is a fairy tale figment. The second one might be that you are blind and unable to see. That those are the only two logical possibilities. And it is the second. To see, you need mercy, forgiveness. <laughs> the problem is not with the evidence, but with ourselves. We simply don't want to see. All of us naturally choose blindness. We don't see God for the same reason that bank robbers don't see policemen or don't find policemen. They don't want to. We fear what will happen. We fear he's going to ruin our lives. We fear he's going to intrude on our fun. We fear that we might be met with anger. But blind men are not evidence that the moon doesn't exist. Deaf men are not evidence that the Mozart never wrote any music. The problem is with us, not with, not with the evidence, not with God. What you need to do is cry out for mercy. Do you see? Have mercy on us. And he's full of compassion. He will not turn you away. They are blind at the beginning, but see at the end. Jesus, full of compassion, touches their eyes. Don't let anything stop you crying out to God. Don't be too embarrassed to do so. Lord, have mercy on you. I'm not seeing, I'm not believing, but, but allow me to. Have mercy, forgive me, show me grace. Let me see. That is a prayer Jesus loves to answer. Cry out if you do not see him. Now the crowds might try and silence you. Your friends might mock you, tease you. It might make you seem odd in other people's eyes. Uh, even your own sort of, your brain might tick away saying, don't say that, don't say that, stupid, stupid. But cry out to him. Nothing is more important. But what if you're a Christian? You believe. Yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God. He's died for my sins. You're forgiven. You're going to heaven. You're a son of God, a daughter of God. Well, notice. Notice Jesus' question. Now, that question in verse 32. What do you want me to do for you? It's a question we've already had in this chapter. If you're here two or three weeks ago. It's a question. In fact, just last week, actually. It's a question that Jesus asked James and John. Uh, and their mother. Verse 20, 21 of the same chapter. Uh, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up with their mom. They get mum to ask the question. But he says, what do you want? Okay, same thing. What do you want me to do for you? Same question. Their answer. Hey, can we be, can we sit in glory with you? Okay, you're going to be the king, get that, you're going to be top dog, but can we be just either side of you? You get the main throne, but can we have the next best seats? Give me stuff, Jesus. Make me important, make me significant, make me a big deal. Blind men on the road, well, have mercy and let me see. You see the same question, two very different intentions. What is it you really want Jesus to do for you? When God looks at you this morning and says to you, what do you want me to do for you? How are you going to answer? The first thing that comes to mind, stuff for you. 
Lord, I, I want that promotion. I need a pay rise. I, I want a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a husband, a wife. I need, I need, I need. It's not wrong to pray for most of those things. But what you need ultimately is, Lord, let me see you. Let me see you. Let me see you more and more and more. Because this is the root of all the other problems in our lives. This whole chapter has been about seeing rightly. At the end of the labourers in the vineyard parable, this parable about how a farmer hired some people in the morning and some people right 30 minutes before the end of the day and then paid them the same. And the ones who worked all day were furious about it, even though they'd agreed that it was a perfectly reasonable fee. Um, Jesus said uh, in verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me or do you begrudge my generosity? And we said that literally, it's like, do you have an evil eye towards me? Uh, you, can, you can see the world through a sort of sense of, of self-pity. Why am I not getting more? Or you can see God and say, thank you so much for your generosity. If you've been more generous to someone else, what's that to me? Do you see God with an evil eye or do you just see grace everywhere? Well, just later, we get a miracle of eyes being opened. The only way that's going to happen is if Jesus opens your eyes. If you beg him for mercy, Lord, may, may I see you. Open my eyes to see you and therefore see the gospel, see the world rightly. Uh, the story of, of, of the James and John wanting glory and Jesus saying, no, no, that the way up in the kingdom is the way down. You've got to give your life to be a servant to others. What allows you to, to live like that? Only if you see properly. And that leads us to the, the second, the final thing, much more quickly I want to look at this morning. Uh, we need mercy to see, to see Jesus. But secondly, seeing leads to serving. Just those last few words of verse 34. They recovered their sight and followed him. They see. What do they do? They don't rush home. They don't go off and get some high-paying jobs. Now they follow Jesus. And I, th- I think that's not just a kind of historical note. Oh, by the way, this is what the, the beggars did next. It, it is a picture of discipleship. Okay, this, again, this is the beginning of the end. We're heading into the final week now. And they follow Jesus. They follow Jesus on this road towards Jerusalem. They become disciples. Why? Because they've seen. In fact, it's the first thing they've seen, isn't it? As they open their eyes, the first thing they see uh, is Christ. So, so do you see Jesus or not? Okay, and if, if you're a Christian, if someone would say you're a follower of Jesus, do you see him or not? I know you don't see him physically, but... Is the answer not, if we're honest, yes and no? I do, but I don't. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. It is always like this in the Christian life, at least until we die and go to heaven. It is seeing that will transform you. We already thought about that verse here. When we see him on the last day, we'll be transformed totally. Earlier on in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we with uncovered faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as you look at Jesus, you're transformed. You become holier, you become more like him, more loving, more kind, more gentle, more patient. As you behold, as you look. So do you see him or not? It is a yes and a no, isn't it? 
it, it's like it's like in the morning when you get in the car and it's cold and your breath steams up the window and you turn on the you know little kind of blowers to, to clear the car windscreen and they, they take a bit of time so for a while you can kind of see but not much or you can see a little bit of a hole and you're trying to drive looking through the hole and sort of wipe off a bit and it, you can see but you can't or you look in the mirror after oh you've had a hot shower and the mirror's steamed up and you want to comb your hair or put your contacts in or whatever and you can sort of see but you also it's a bit blurry that's what our vision is like at the moment. We don't see him face to face yet. And even our faith is it's mixed, isn't it? Okay, there's smoke and fire. Okay, it's not a pure flame yet. All of our lives are like that. I was speaking with another, another minister, much more experienced than me uh, the other day. And he was saying, he keeps asking people, do you know Jesus loves you? And he says, you can see them rolling their eyes. Yes, I know that. It's like the most basic thing. Of course I know that. And he says, I think you, you don't know, do you? I do, but you don't. Not really. That's exactly right, isn't it? So, so as we finish, how, how can you see him? He is not going to appear. He's not going to appear and walk down the streets of Leeds. He's not going to appear to you magically in, in a dream, almost certainly. He's not going to appear in a shroud in Turin or all these other sort of bizarre appearances you get how are you going to see him well that's what our second passage was all about Uh, in Acts 26 as Paul is on trial and defending himself he he explains this King Agrippa that that he was sent in verse 18 of chapter 6 sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes Gentiles are non-Jews people like you and me so that we might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and receive forgiveness of sins. Okay, Jesus sent him to open people's eyes. Okay, that's opening the eye picture again, just like Bartimaeus, the blind men. But how does it happen? What did you notice? When Paul, verse 22, just says, look, I've done, I've had the help that comes from God. I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That is, I've said nothing, says Paul, apart from what the Old Testament says. Prophets and Moses, Old Testament. I've just said this. Now, what does the Old Testament say? Do you see that? I reckon there's a couple of things in there that the Old Testament says that you expect, and one that you're almost certainly not expecting. Verse 23. The Christ must suffer, i.e. die. Now, the Old Testament points forward to the death of Jesus. Okay, we know that. All sorts of ways. He's going to die. Christ would rise again. That might be a bit slower. Can we think of places in the Old Testament that point forward to the resurrection of Jesus? It's harder than the, the cross, isn't it? There's all sorts of sacrifices in the Old Testament. The resurrection, a bit harder, but it's there. We're not going to go there now, but it's there. What about the next one? The Old Testament says that he, Jesus, would proclaim, preach, light, both to our people, Jews, and to the Gentiles. Paul says, look, I'm just saying what the Old Testament says. Jesus would die, okay, rise, yes. And then Jesus would preach to the Gentiles. Preach light, open eyes, in other words, of Gentiles. When did Jesus do that? Didn't, did he? He died, yep. He rose again, yep. And then he appeared to the disciples a little bit, and that was it. When did he preach to the Gentiles? Is Paul wrong? Is the whole Old Testament wrong? No, of course not. Jesus preached to the Gentiles through, or through Paul and the other apostles, and continues to preach to the Gentiles through those 
men and women right across the world who preach God's word today, preach the word of the apostles. Jesus is still opening eyes today. He is still at work, just as much as he was on the Jericho Road, opening eyes through the preaching of his word. That is how eyes are opened. That is how the mirror is more and more unmisted, the window cleared. As Jesus continues to speak to you through his his word, the Bible. And especially, I think, as it's preached to you week by week, however poorly by the minister. And I say that with no sort of false modesty. I'm very aware of of shortcomings of, of this particular church in our preaching. But thank God it is he who is at work through his word. It is he who opens eyes. So let me ask you, how do you come to a sermon on a Sunday? I started by asking, what do you want from a sermon? How do you, how do you come? What do you... Come like, like Bartimaeus, come like the blind men, begging, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I know I don't deserve to see you, but have mercy on me and open my eyes. Let me see you. Let me know you more, believe in you more. I know the, the, the kids are screaming in the corner and... Uh, the traffic zooms past outside and the urn kicks in and all sorts of things distract me, Lord, but let me see you. I know I'm exhausted from last night. I know I've had a long shift. I know, I know, I know. Please, Lord. Bartimaeus' urgency, the, the blind man's urgency. Everyone else says, shut up, and they just keep crying out. Let me see. This is what I want. The one thing I want is to see you. As you come to community group or your Bible in the morning, if you're reading it on your own, it's the same thing. Lord, I can't rely on my intellectual brilliance. Lord, I can't rely on my skills of analysis of a passage. I need you to open my eyes if I'm actually going to have spiritual fruit here. And the good news is he wants to be seen. He wants us to come to him. He's not a God who wants to hide. He wants you to know him better and better. He wants to reveal himself to you. That's why he asks, what do you want? He knows, he knows, he knows the men are blind. He knows what's wrong with you. Better than you know what's wrong with you, actually. But he wants us to learn to ask, to find grace, to see that he is that kind of saviour. When Jesus assesses the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation, these seven churches around kind of Turkey, as we'd call it now, he comes to the Laodiceans and, and says, look, you're... Well, no use, you're not doing anything. You're not, you're not hot water or cold water. Hot water is useful for washing, cold water is useful for refreshing drinks, but you're nothing. Okay? You're not doing anything. Why? Why are, you, why are you lukewarm? Well, because you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Is that a danger for you at the moment? Actually, life's okay. I don't really need anything from you. So when I do come to you in prayer, Lord, I will ask for a few top-ups. Upgrades, improve the contract. But I don't really need anything from you. Beware, says Jesus. You say, you say you're rich, you need nothing, but you don't realise you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. You don't realise you can't see. Does someone who's born blind understand what it is not not to be able to see? But thankfully, how does he go on? Not get out of my sight, not I never want to see you again, but rather I counsel you, I tell you, I advise you, buy from me gold refined by fire. 
and buy for me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. You need to be able to see, says Jesus, and buy from me the medicine that will open your eyes. I'm here knocking. If you want to see, I will grow you. I will strengthen your faith. I will show you myself. But ask. I'm here. I'm knocking. Open the door. What do you need? Is life comfortable? Is everything sorted? Is Jesus just an Amazon wish list when it comes to prayer? No, said Jesus. I am here to give you sight. When you see me, it will transform you. I will come in and eat with you. A saviour who wants to be seen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are blind uh, in many ways. Uh, We need that that salve, that ointment to anoint our eyes, to see more clearly. We need the the mirror to be uh, wiped clear. Uh, We confess to you that that blurry vision uh, is not because of any lack in you, in your revelation, in the goodness and fullness and sufficiency of your word, but is in in the hardness of heart, the blindness of our own spiritual eyes. And so we pray that you would open the eyes of the blind. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. Give us, we pray, a hunger for your word. Might we come desperately as we listen to it week by week, as we open it in our homes. I thank you that you're full of grace, full of compassion, that your guts are moved with love and, and, and compassion towards us. So please allow us to see and open the eyes, we pray particularly, of those who have not seen your love and wonder in giving your life for our sin at the cross. We bring before you those known to us, our friends, our family, those in desperate need of eyes opening for the first time. Lord, have mercy. Son of David, have mercy, we pray. In your own name. Amen.